0: In Ephesians, we are in chapter 5, and perhaps you could put a finger there, or perhaps your your um, page marker is permanently there. We've been there for so long, and turn back to Genesis chapter oh, 3, I think, is where we're headed, and we'll spend a couple of minutes there. Genesis 1 and... Genesis 4, somewhere in there. I'll direct you when we get there. Last week, we began looking at this crucial, practical, and highly controversial portion of Scripture, and we learned some important truths that will help us as we work our way toward the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 of Paul's letter to Ephesus. First of all, we learned in verse 21... That joyful and willing submission is central to the Christian life. It is central to the Christian life. It is not something that God dreamed up to oppress women and children, but something he lovingly shared with us to produce and maintain in our relationships a true sense of harmony and oneness and joy in every human relationship. Every human relationship. Contrary to what the world, and in particular the feminist movement, teaches, biblical submission is not the root of conflict and oppression. Rather, when understood and applied the way God prescribes it, it becomes the fountain of unifying grace and joy in the church, and on the job, and in the Bible study, and in the home. Humble submission is a central plank to the Christian life. And so Paul says in verse 21, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Second, we learned last week that In the home, submission is not just the duty that has been foisted upon wives. And this is proceeding logically out of the first thing we learned. It's not something that's just been foisted upon wives and upon children. No, it is to be the posture of every member of a believing family. Men, women, children alike. All are called to submission because all of us are called to humility. In other words... Every one of us is called to maintain a high regard for others and a low regard for ourselves. Understand that? All of us are called to maintain a high regard of the people around us. And that takes work. It takes discipline. And to maintain a low view of ourselves. The self-esteem gospel is a horrible thing for the church. And to the degree that we embrace that, to that degree, we drink the poison of the world and sabotage the very unification and joy in our relationships that we desire. As we saw last week, the Greek word in chapter 5, verse 21, for be subject, is hupotasso, which means to rank under, to rank yourself under. And so the apostle was saying, ranking yourself under one another in the fear of Christ. You see, the Christian family was designed to function very differently than the families of the world regarding how its members relate to one another. If the philosophy of the world system is live and let live, the philosophy of the church is die to let live. Die to save life. Instead of exalting self on our mad dash to the top, we rather die to self in order to lift others up. That's why Jesus said, and we talked about this last week, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, right? But to what? Serve. And to give his life a ransom for many Giving, 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 giving. Never trying to receive, never trying to get, never trying to angle your way in and onto the top. Always ranking yourself under. I promise you, you will never have the marriage that God made you to enjoy until you grasp and implement that truth. You will never relate to one another, mom and dad, husband and wife. You will never relate to one another. The kind of satisfying joy that you picture in your mind you might be able to have someday in your marriage until you understand what it means to rank yourself under your mate. It's got to start there. And so submission is central to the Christian life, and it is the calling of every child of God without exception. Thirdly, we learn that the reason why submission is central to the Christian life and applies to all who believe is because submission is a reflection of the very character of God. It is a reflection of the character, the nature, the essence of who God is. Our lives are to be marked by a submissive spirit because his life was marked by a submissive spirit. This is one of the most amazing truths in all the Bible. I think this tops them, maybe tops them all. That the self-existent God... Think about it. The self-existent God. The I am that I am. The one who created all that exists by the powerful fiat of his word. He spoke and it was. This God who is the source of life itself. Who invented matter and energy and space and spirit. Who alone possesses immortality and light. This God, who is exalted above the nation, who humbles himself, the scripture says, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven. Psalm 113. This God humbled himself. This majestic of all beings, this ultimate cosmic authority, is the one who has, from eternity past, humbled himself in submission. As we saw last week, the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity is the substance and source of all true authority and submission. Though the three are one in essence and are equal in every conceivable way, yet their function is ordered in a systematic, orderly system of authority and submission. It is so important. If you don't grasp this, you'll always be wondering to yourself, who invented this idea of submission and authority in the home? Where did that come from? It came from God because that's how the Trinity lives. The Father is always seen as the ultimate authority. The son delights to submit to his father and to perform all of his perfect will so that Jesus says, I don't speak from my own authority and I do nothing of my own authority. What I do and what I say, I hear from the father. He tells me what to say and how to say it. That's what I do. He loved to submit to his father. He trusted his father. He knew his character. He knew his nature. He knew that he would never tell his son to do anything wrong or anything that wasn't good or holy or perfect altogether. The son delighted and still delights to submit to the father. And the spirit always lives to exalt who? The Son. Oh, be careful, brothers and sisters, that you don't exalt the Spirit for the sake of exalting the Spirit. The Spirit lives to exalt the Son. He always lives to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does it in obedience to who? The Father. It's all to the glory of the Father. But there's always been this... Submission within the Trinity and this authority in the Trinity. And so, listen to me, follow the logic here. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God said, Let us, by the way, if you don't believe the Trinity, you have to deal with that verse, let us create man in our own image according to our likeness, and man came into existence. As one who is capable of, listen, he came, in, came into existence bearing the nature, the imprint of God, the image of God. And by that, he was able to maintain the perfect balance between authority on the one hand and submission on the other. We know that because it comes from the very character of God. He made us like himself in many ways. His Remember in men's ministry, guys, his communicable attributes, the things that are true of him that can also be true of us, these are two of them. We can have authority and we can submit and we can do both with joy. And so when God created Adam and Eve, he told them, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that's got feet, everything that has breath on the earth, you rule them. You're in charge. Under my authority, you have charge. You have limited authority over the earth. And so Adam and Eve could rule over the earth with substantial authority. And at the same time, they could delight in a posture of submission both before God and before one another. And it was good. Not only good, it was very good. And that's the way it was in the garden. Do not think for a moment that the whole idea of authority and submission is something that came about after the fall, something that God invented after sin came in the the world. Well, how are we going to manage this? They ate the fruit. You know, okay, how do we, what's our move? Son, Spirit, what do we do? Well, I know, let's come up with a system of authority. That's not how it worked. It was already in place between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They bore that imprint on man, and they said, now you rule and submit. Rule and submit with joy. Paradise. Authority and submission in paradise. This is the picture of humanity at its most glorious state. You understand that? This is the picture of humanity at its most glorious state. This is the picture of man and woman when they were most human, bearing the image of God to its fullest glory. Man has never borne the image of God more fully than Adam and Eve did. And to the extent that we have drifted from this pattern, to that extent we have become, as it were, less human. Human, yes. But not fulfilling the purpose for which we were created as well. Because we have turned away from the very attributes that he gave us in maintaining the balance of authority and submission under his rule over the earth for the good of all. The feminist elitists of our day say that the puritanic idea of authority and submission in the home serves only to derail a woman's prospects at reaching her full human potential. But this is a lie from the tongue of the old serpent himself. If you believe that, I guarantee you've got problems at home. I guarantee it. We are only living to our greatest human potential to the extent that we delight to live according to the original ideal bestowed upon us in the garden. It was paradise. And in paradise, there was submission and authority. Submission and authority. And so as we begin considering the biblical roles of men and women in the home, it will be helpful to realize that the goal of all of this is to restore our marriage relationships to the pattern set before us in Adam and Eve, in paradise. You see, on the day this original couple chose to disobey God, paradise was lost they were kicked out of the garden, and the battle of the sexes began. And we see that in Genesis 3. I told you it was somewhere in there, Genesis chapter 3. And I just want you to look at this briefly. It's Genesis 3 and another passage in Genesis chapter 4. But I want you to see it with your eyes and not just trust that I'm telling you the truth. Genesis 3.16, this is God after the after the fruit was eaten and God went looking for Adam and that classic passage where he calls, Adam, where are you? Why, why aren't you here with me? Tell us the truth, Adam. What did you do that would make you want to not be here at our appointed time? And they were exposed for having violated his word for listening to the serpent and believing his lies instead of trusting the God who created them and loved them. And so God pronounces the curse, and along with the curse on the ground comes difficulty in the relationship. And first thing we read in Genesis... um, Genesis... Where is it? 3. 16. That's right. God says to Eve, 3.16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Now listen to this phrase. Yet your desire will be for your husband. Your desire will be for your husband. Understand, however, that when God said to Eve that her desire would be for her husband, he wasn't saying, Eve, something new is happening here. And that, that is what he was saying. You would desire your husband. In other words, you're going to want to serve him and you're going to want to fill him up and you're going to want to meet his needs. That's what she had already been doing. There was a change here. Your pain will be multiplied in childbirth, and your desire will be for your husband. Well, we know that the word desire here didn't mean submit. It didn't mean all of a sudden you're going to have a desire to do for your husband whatever he needs done. You're going to be a faithful helper. You're going to give him what he needs and what he desires. No, that's not what he meant. The word desire here is the same word used in chapter 4, verse 7. And this is God speaking to Cain. Cain is about to murder his brother. His brother doesn't know that yet. And God is giving Cain a warning. And we won't read it all, but verse 7 says, If you do well, Cain, will not your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin's desire, same word, is for you, but you must master it. What's he saying? The idea here is that sin wants to master or control you, Cain, And that is precisely the kind of desire that entered into the heart of Eve after they opened the door to sin. From that moment on, the woman would be seeking to control, to master her husband. And the man would, from that moment on, seek to dominate his wife. And this is the original battle of the sexes. It started there in the garden, and it has never stopped. We see it played out all through human history. And as far as the perfect marital relationship is concerned, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, paradise was lost forever. But then came the Lord Jesus. And then we learn through the Apostle Paul of this Enormous doctrine called, in two words, in Christ. In Christ. You are a new creature. In Christ. Old things are passed away. In Christ. Now you're a new person. Now things are changing. Things have changed radically and things will continue to change. You've repented. You know what that means? It means you were walking in this direction, and now you've turned around. And now you're walking in this direction, the opposite way. You were walking away from God. You were walking away from paradise. And now you've repented. And now you're going home. And the closer you get, the more you look like Jesus. And the closer you get, the more you act like Adam and Eve. Because they acted like Christ. They acted like God. In Christ, paradise lost can become paradise regained. A marriage that is racked by selfishness, pride, mistrust, and anger can be traded in for a renewed relationship of submission, humility, mutual trust, and satisfying joy. It won't happen in a moment, but it can happen. It can happen. And it happens all the time. As men and women are willing to exercise submission, first of all, to the word of God. It happens. And so where does a relationship like this start? Where do we begin turning the Titanic back to port before hitting the proverbial iceberg? Well, the place to start is where God's word starts. In Ephesians chapter 5, namely, with a wife... Who resolves to rank herself under her husband. That's where it begins. Now, well, there are three things that we need to see in these verses in chapter 5, starting with verse 22, 22 through 24. Three things we, I want you to see this morning namely, the exhortation, the explanation, and the excellencies of a wife's submission to her husband. And so that's where we're going. The exhortation, the explanation, and the excellencies of a Wife's submission to her husband. So first, number one, let's read this passage together, starting with verse... I want to start with verse 21 because we can't avoid the context here. Being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives, be subject to to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ is also... As Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Notice the exhortation of submission. If you want to notice here the very first words, the first thing we need to see is wives be subject. If you notice there, those two words, probably in your Bible, are in italics. That's not for emphasis. That's telling you something. The translators want you to know something. And so they said, when we print this, put these two words in italics because they're not in the original text. They're not in the Greek text. Rather, they are assumed from the previous verse. In the Greek, it reads this, verse 21 and 22. Being subject to one another in the fear of Christ the wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. You see the connection? He's got one thought, and he's carrying it through. And remember, that one thought was the final thought of a string of prepositions that he gave us talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what it looks like. And the very last thing that is characteristic of being filled with the Holy Spirit is submitting yourselves or subjecting yourselves, ranking yourselves under one another. Wives, do that with your husbands. That's what he's saying. Do that with your husbands. Wives, if you were Striving to be an imitator of God, chapter 5, verse 1, right? Be, therefore, be imitators of God. If you're striving to be an imitator of God by living a life that is filled with the Spirit, verse 18, then you will be known as a woman who ranks herself under other people just like Jesus did, verse 21. And the first person you will rank yourself under is, guess who? Your husband. That's how it works. And so if you want to turn paradise lost into paradise regained in your marriage, this is where it begins. Wives, this is your part. You can't do anything to change your husband. You cannot change him. Forget it. Stop trying. You cannot change him. You cannot change anyone. In fact, if you work real hard at it, you'll find that It's impossible even on your own to change yourself. you got to have the Holy Spirit working in you. And if you have the Holy Spirit working in you, if you are filled with the Spirit and your efforts to change yourself, guess what? It's still going to be hard. You're still going to have plenty of work to do. You won't have any time left over to worry about anybody else. And so you focus on you. By the way, that's always... The starting point in marriage counseling, when there's problems, I think I've told you this before, but when uh, we do marriage counseling, the first thing we want to know is, where's the sin? Where is the sin? Because somewhere in this relationship, somebody's not measuring up to the word of God. And we always go to the man and we say, listen, next week we want you to come back with 50, 50... um, 50 points of confession, how you have sinned against your wife. We want you to come back with a list of 50 things that you've done to hurt your wife. And by the way, here's a list of 99 things that you can choose from. (laughs) And they come back, and they read that list. And we look at the wife and say, what do you think? Is he hitting it? And she invariably will say, yeah, but he's leaving a few out. And we have her do the same thing. Why? Because repentance never begins with the other person. It always begins with me. It always begins with me owning my sin. You may ask, why is God so concerned about this? Well, you see, your joy and his glory are intimately connected. You understand that? Your joy in marriage and his glory in your marriage is intimately connected. You cannot separate the two. He brought you and your husband together in order to set his glory on display in the world through your marriage. So that people will look at your life and they'll say, man, what is different about them? How do they do that? They look like... I don't know. They like each other? They like being together? Is it Dr. Phil? Is it Oprah? I mean, what's the secret? And you'll be there saying, no, it's it's none of that. None of that garbage from the shipwreck of worldly philosophy. It's this. You obey the word of God and you can't go wrong you cannot go wrong and so if it's not working if it's not working the light of his glory is being short circuited and the evidence of that fact is your lack of joy in your marriage you say but uh, my husband's an unbeliever well that may be true that may be true. And you may not know the joy of the intimacy of a Christian marriage, but you can know the joy of submitting to the Lord. We're going to get to that next. You can have joy in marriage, even if your husband is an unbeliever. In fact, wives, by your submission, oh, brother, wait until we get there. I've only got 15 minutes left. Okay. This is why God commands you to submit to your husband. It's not just about making you happy. It's not only about making you happy. It's about declaring the excellencies of Jesus Christ, right? Brent preached on this a few weeks ago. What is the purpose for the church? Why do we exist? Why did he leave us here? Answer. One answer. To proclaim the excellencies of Christ. That's why we're here. So that we can tell people. If they ask, and people ask. You go to a restaurant and your kids are behaving. <laughs> Folks, come. All right, all right, all right. How do, you, how do you do that? Kettle prod, what? Tell me. How do you train them to sit quietly and to engage in animated conversation without throwing things at each other? Answer? Christ is excellent in my home. You say, how is it that you love your wife? You've been married to her for 19 years. This will be your 19th anniversary coming up. And how is it that you love her more now, you say, than you ever did before? Answer, Christ is excellent in my marriage. Christ is excellent in my disciplining my children. Not perfect, but excellent. We're declaring the excellencies of Christ. It's all about declaring his goodness. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if, what? You obey my commandments. You are my friends if you obey and you demonstrate your love for me by your obedience. And your obedience will produce love for one another. And by that, my father is greatly glorified. So do it. Do it. The wife's submission is not one of several equally valid options relative to her relationship with her husband in marriage. God has ordained that your joy and his glory will hinge on whether or not you exercise a submissive spirit so he delivers to us this command. Wives, rank yourself under your husband. And by the way, Notice the motive that inspires a spirit-filled wife to rank herself under in this way. Paul says, being subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. You say, oh, come on. (laughs) As to the Lord? Don't misunderstand that. He's not saying that you should look at your husband and treat him like Jesus. What he's saying is, you be submissive, first of all, to the Lord. This is submission to the Lord. Paul means simply that submitting to your earthly husband should be viewed as an act of submission to your heavenly husband. That is, the Lord. You say, my husband is not worthy of my submission. That's right. He's not, my, how do I say this? (laughs) My wife's submission is not based on my worthiness. It's not that I'm better than she is. It's that God has ordained a pattern. And he has commanded us to obey it. For our own good. For his glory and our joy. A wife might say, well, I don't love my husband anymore. You know, I just, you know, if I were just plain and honest, I hate his guts. To which the Lord responds, okay, do you love me? Do you love me? John fourteen fifteen. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you can't do it out of love for your husband, do it out of love for me. Do it because you love me, and you know it will please me, knowing that I will bless you for your obedience. By the way, before we move on, I think it's important to note that the kind of submission the Lord is calling for here is not the kind that a child gives to his parents, right? Ephesians 6, 1 Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You know, every parent teaches their child that before Genesis 1-1, because 1, it's the most important passage in Scripture, right? Parents, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Uh, nor is this the same kind of obedience that, uh, that is indicative of, uh, in chapter 6, in verse 5, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. This is not the same thing. The word for submit and the word for obey are not the same word. A husband is not to treat his wife like a servant or a child. And the wife is not to see herself as a servant or as a child, but as an an equal for whom God has given her husband care and responsibility for provision and for protection, which is to be exercised in love. With grace, he is never to lord it over her. He is always to rank himself under her while she is ranking herself under him. It's the only way it works. And by the way, he's supposed to do it, Peter says, First Peter 3, 7. He is never to lord it over her, but to rank under her, showing her honor, showing her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. We are co-heirs in Jesus Christ. My relationship with you is different than any other relationship that I have. You are precious to me beyond measure. I would never lord it over you. It is my delight to serve you, to protect you, to provide for you, to meet your needs, and to be your gracious authority in this home. Ladies, if... Your hope is that perhaps paradise lost can be paradise regained in your marriage. The first step is to submit to Christ by submitting to your husband. And that's that's the exhortation to submission. But notice also the explanation of submission, verse 23. Verse 23 says, For, or because, or this is the explanation, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Now, this is perhaps the most controversial verse in the entire passage. The idea of calling the husband the head in marriage has been an incredibly uh, controversial proposition for many in the church. In fact, there is an organized effort to cast this verse in a more liberating light. And perhaps the foremost movement of its kind is known today as evangelical feminism. It's not that they reject the word of God in order to come to their their conclusion like humanistic feminists do, but rather they try to take the word of God to prove their point. But the conclusion is the same. It's a group that is made it their chief business to debunk the whole idea of submission in marriage. They claim that the word head here should be interpreted to mean source rather than authority. It doesn't mean authority, they say. It means source. The idea of what God would have set the husband up as a functional, authoritative head in the marriage purely by virtue of his gender is absolutely incendiary to them. The problem with this view of course is there's no scripture to support it. In fact, Dr. Wayne Grudem reports that a new search of 2336 examples of kafale which is head from a wide range of ancient Greek literature produced no convincing examples where this word means source. And not from the Bible either. In fact, Paul gives his own explanation of the word's definition right here in this verse. In what sense is the husband head in the marriage relationship? In the same sense that Christ is head of the church. Now, is he the church's source? Yes, of course he is. But whenever the apostle uses this term elsewhere in scripture, it almost always means authority. And we don't have time to look at them all, but I'll give you one. The most significant, I think, is 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen. 13. You can just jot that down. I'll read it for you. 1 Corinthians 11, 13. But I want you to know, Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. You see the authority and submission pattern? So once again, we see the appeal of God himself. Even Christ is under the Father's authority. And man is under Christ's authority. And the wife is under her husband's authority. This is all about authority and submission. And that's the way God has ordered it. But why? Why? Why do it this way? Why complementarian rather than egalitarian? If you want to get into the controversial terms, this is where it splits. On one side, they say we're egalitarian in in the marriage. In other words, husband and wife are exactly equal in all ways, except for physical, And therefore, there should not be anyone who's an authority, that they're both authority, and they're both to submit. And the other group, who I believe is the biblical group, the more biblical group, says, no, it's not egalitarian. It's complementarian. They work together. They have different roles. They are equal in Christ, yes. But they serve different functions, just as it is in the Trinity. But why did God give this? Well, what is the explanation for the order? I, th- I think we discover the answer to that question, not only in the wording of this verse, but in the whole structure of the passage. Paul says the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of what? The church. About a year ago, I went through, it looks like, with a, with a pink dry marker and marked every place where the word church or the concept of the church is used between verses 24 and the end of this chapter, verse 33. And I'll just read you the words. Church, body, church, church, her, 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 church, she, church, his body, church, his own wife. All of them references to the church. And as I said last week, as you're studying this passage, or if you're reading this passage, you you have to pay attention, and even if you're paying attention... You're sometimes wondering, okay, is he talking about the church and Christ, or is he talking about marriage between husband and wife? It's hard to tell, because the two are so intimately entangled. What's the point? The point is that God designed marriage to demonstrate, to set on display the glory of Christ's relationship to his church. Christ's relationship to his church. That's the way God ordered it. You see, God's ultimate goal for marriage is to set on display before the world a living example of the glory of his bride, his relationship, his marriage to come with the church. And every believer is a part of this global body in Christ known as the church, but the world can't see that. The world can't see the global bride of Christ. And the world can't even get in here for the most part. I mean, unbelievers come. Yes, it's true. And they're welcome. If you're an unbeliever here today, you're welcome. But by and large, the church, the world doesn't know what's going on inside this building or when we meet in our homes. What does the world see? The world sees Christian families and Christian marriages. And every believer who is a part of the big church is also a little church unto itself. Not to function autonomously from the church, but to demonstrate the glory of Christ in his relationship with the church before everyone in the world who sees. That's God's design for marriage, that's the way all of this fits together. I wish if you were sitting here today and you're thinking about your marriage and you're saying, man, I long for a marriage like that. You ought to be able to look at your marriage and say, well, that's really something, that God has done that for us. That's amazing that God has done this miracle in my wife's heart and in my heart I mean, why is it that these miraculous things have happened in the lives of couples, even in this church, so that those who were enemies of one another are now the dearest of friends and love each other with an indissoluble love that is not easily shaken, it is not easily offended, it is not easily embittered toward one another. It matches 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage, you look at that and say, yeah, that's my marriage. Not perfect, but yeah, this, this is it. How did that miracle happen? God, why did you do that? Answer, it's bigger than you. You didn't deserve it. I am out to set my glory on display in your marriage. Then the unbelievers will come and they will look and say, wow, that's, that really is something. I wish I had a marriage like that. Maybe their God really is someone that I should get to know. Every Christian marriage should be seen and evaluated in this light. The husband has been assigned the privilege of representing Christ in the marriage, and every wife has been assigned the privilege of representing the church in all her glory. Not a proud, demanding, overbearing, rebellious church, but a beautiful, tender, reverent, and submissive church that delights to serve the one that she loves. That's a high calling. And that's the explanation for submission. That's why it's important. And it fits right into Paul's last thought on the subject, the example of submission, verse 24 and the end of verse 23. I'll, I'll read them both together. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. In verse 23, Paul points out that Christ is not only the head of the church, he is also her Savior. He is her Savior. Now, I don't think that he's saying that the husband is in some way his wife's Savior, you know, Superman, right? I'm here to save you, honey. I'm here to help. I'm here to fix you. Well, that, that's not it. Rather, I think Paul is just pointing out that even Jesus, who was the head, even Jesus, who was the head, took on the role of submission. Even Jesus, who was the ultimate authority, he took on the role of submission. He ranked himself under, serving her in order to save her. I think what he's saying is, wife, don't think of yourself as second class. This is the way Jesus lived. He's always putting himself under his church. Did he live decisively? Did he lead decisively and authoritatively? Yes, when it was required. But always ranking himself under the ones that he loved. I think Paul is telling wives, listen, this is a command of Christ. Christ. But he not commanding you to do anything that he was not willing to do in the extreme. His role as servant was a glorious role. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 said, For this reason God highly exalted him and has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Why? Because he did not think being equal with God was something that must be held on to. But he made of himself no reputation. He set aside his privileges and he made himself a servant, our Savior. It's a high calling. It's the high calling of every Christian wife to serve as a model of the church which takes its cues not from the world but from the model of Christ himself. And so also the wives are to be to their own husbands in everything. Now, of course, in everything does not mean that you will submit to their willful rebellion against the revealed will of God. That's not what it means. But it does mean that you maintain a general attitude of respecting the role that God has given him to uphold in the home. It means you don't usurp his leadership. It means you don't challenge his judgment disrespectfully and certainly never in public and certainly never before the children. And if it's any help, ladies, you need to understand that the role God is calling you to is a profoundly influential role as well. Is it not? There is nothing that empowers a man to graciously lead like a Christian woman who humbly submits like Christ, like the church. There is nothing that empowers a man to graciously lead like Christ than a woman who humbly submits like the church. Perhaps that's why Peter wrote these words, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4 in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. He loves to see that. Most of you have heard uh, Charlie and Mary Jean's testimony about how they um, knew each other first before they knew Christ and how Charlie was a rank, miserable unbeliever. (laughs) Right, Charlie? heathen, and um, Mary Jean came to know the Lord. And right at the point where they were, um, they decided that it was time to quit. God used the amazing power of a gentle, submissive, newly born again wife to make her husband say, Whatever you've got, I like. How do I get it too? And the reason that we have an elder who's here every Sunday morning leading worship is because one day God got a hold of her, his wife, and everything changed. This is not about women fulfilling some position of servitude like a childlike servant. It is about women finding the proper role as God has designed it for their own joy and for God's great glory. I know in my own marriage the incredible motivation it was upon me toward being a more faithful leader in my home when my wife gave up trying to change me And began to exercise gentle, supportive, submissive, graciousness to an undeserving husband. And life changed. Life changed in a miraculous way. And our relationship is not what it was only six years ago. And I credit it to one thing. Not because I became the amazing leader. But because she said, okay, from this point on, my role is to be the church. And if he ever becomes Christ, that's between him and God. But I will be the church. And I will love Christ. And I will delight in him, even if nobody else cares. And it was the power for radical transformation in my life. Ladies, do you pray that someday someday paradise lost will be paradise regained? Perhaps that will begin when you resolve before God to begin living as a model of the church's relationship to her Lord and start ranking yourself under your husband for the glory of God, the good of your marriage, and your own unspeakable joy. Let's pray.